Okay, chapter 13 is not an easy chapter, I'll warn you up front. Some complexities in it, uh, but critical to, to what John is being able to see um, during this, this part of the revelation that I like, to, I like to call kind of the cosmic, the cosmic view of what's going on down here on earth as well as in the heavenly realms, okay? Um, so the way I like to just read chapters, you know, 12 and 13 of the Revelation, I like to, to kind of read it through, through, the, through the eyes of what we see in our world. I turn on the television, and I see some crazy things happening. And I say to myself, what in the world is going on? Um, I mean, I turn on my television this morning, the first thing that I saw, again, were all of these cars buried in mud, in, in California, where they've had no rain, where there's a drought. And so one minute they're like, oh, we have a drought. God, please send rain. We got to have rain. Whoosh. All the cars are now in the mud. They're like, oh, not that kind of rain, right? <laughs> so you look at that stuff, you're like, what in the world is going on? Well, God's at work, right? Does, do, is there a single television reporter that, that puts that on the screen and says to you, listen, let's look at what's going on here. There's a God at work. And we human beings who think we have the answer to everything, we can fix something with a pill or we can, you know, go to our government and change things, we can't fix anything. We can't get water to stay in our reservoirs. When it does rain, it all washes away from the reservoirs and it buries our cars in mud. And so while we're complaining and digging our mud out and getting our cars out, we should all remember that, that this is all happening under the authority of a God who's trying to remind us that we're not him and that we need him. And thank God it was just a car that got buried and not you. And so while, while you have time, come to him. And, uh, is there one single television reporter who's saying that stuff? No, they're not saying that. They get on there and they're like, oh, we've got this. Rain. So what Revelation does, it says, no, there, there's things that are seen and things that are unseen. The things that are unseen are what Revelation is trying to help us see, right? That there's this, this war, this battle going on, and it's a very real war, and it's a war for souls of human beings. And we have an enemy who absolutely hates us. Chapter 12 is that one of those sections of the Revelation that I mean, I've got it so highlighted in my Bible, you can hardly read it because I come back to it again and again, and I think here's this picture of this great dragon, right, who waits for the woman to give birth to the child. It's the, it's the time of Jesus' birth, and what's going on is this political king, Herod, right, wants to protect his position and sets himself up to try to kill the child before the child can grow up and supplant him. And so here is this dragon who's working through a king to try to kill Jesus Christ at the point of his birth and it fails and then it goes on to say Revelation 12 that the dragon became so enraged that he couldn't carry out this plan that he had that he said well I can't kill Jesus Christ so guess what I'll go off and I will make war with his offspring that's us and, and any single day of my life that I wake up and I forget to think, hey, Luke, there are demons, fallen angels, who are watching you today, who are just looking for those places in your life where you're, you have a weakness or an opening. Any day I forget that, it's a bad day. 
Because what Revelation is saying is when you wake up in the morning, one of the first things in your mind should be what? There's a war going on for my soul. And that battle does actually entail fallen angels who've been on this earth since its very beginning. And guess what? I can't beat them. I can't win that war. If I try in my own strength to do this day, I'm doomed. I, I, I will fail. And so Luther, when he wrote the catechism, remember he wrote a, a morning prayer and, and an evening prayer. In the evening prayer, he said, pray it like this. Basically, God, would you, would you cover me through the night? Send your holy angels, give them charge over me. Let the hosts of heaven come against the hosts of hell because there's a spiritual war going on that we can't win. In the morning, what is he saying? Give this day to Jesus Christ. Acknowledge that you need him in every step that you take because it's a very real war that's going on. Revelation is trying to help us see that, picture that. Okay. Now, when you get into chapter 13, you're just continuing what chapter 12 gives us. Chapter 12 gives us those, those two beautiful, really ugly actually pictures of this dragon that's that's coming after the child and now coming after us when you get to chapter 13 you're going to see now i'm going to say this as simply as i can that the dragon satan not only works through fallen angels but he works through earthly agencies and i can't tell you how many times I see something happen in the political realm or the world of education or the world of lawmaking and I think to myself, there are human beings involved. Yes, they're humans and they're puppets. They don't have a clue that they're literally carrying out the will of Satan himself. They, they don't have a clue and yet they are. And so what we're going to be presented with are, 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 are something that we like to call the two beasts of the revelation okay they're distinct from one another and yet they 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 come together and serve one another one of the beasts the first one that we'll look at is is primarily primarily political in nature okay so the domain of the first beast is going to be politics education lawmaking any earthly agency that Satan says, I can deceive these people to carry out my will, right? Um, to the degree that sometimes I look at the American education system and I will say, that's satanic. The fact that, that Grand Island public school system said we're going to adopt, right, the sex standards, the national sex standards, um, I look at that and my, my first response is, that is satanic. Because what, what is happening is, you're, you're going to adopt a system that says to kids, this is okay. And it, it's outside, completely outside of God's will. I'm thankful that we have Christian people inside of that system that kids say, hey, guess what? My, my teacher says something different to me. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that we have homes this is why I put such an emphasis on the home, where we're raising up our kids to actually go back into that system and to say to their friends, there's a different way. There's a way of God. And we can be witnesses in, in the public system. But it, it's satanic. It's people are carrying out the will of Satan, literally. Okay? So that's the first beast. The second beast we're going to look at is primarily spiritual. Okay? So I want you to think in history about times on planet Earth 
where the church has been used to serve the will of Satan. Sounds weird, but it's absolutely correct. And when the church and the politic come together, now you've got yourself a real dynamic where it's playing out on planet Earth in a way that people are being deceived and brought under, uh, again, satanic rule. Okay? So we'll look at, look at that a little bit. I think a couple of weeks ago we talked about, you know, Luther and his treatise on the power of the primacy and the Pope and, you know, how he saw some of that in Catholicism at, at his time in the 1500s. Uh, today, when I look at Islam, and it's, it's encroached into American culture and what Islam is, I find myself saying, that is the spiritual beast without any question, without any question whatsoever. And so we'll pick a little bit of that up as we dive into this. Okay, so turn to chapter 13, and let's just start off pretty, pretty simply. Verse 1 says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Okay. So a couple of, couple of real quick thoughts and then we'll, we'll dive down just a little bit on that. Is, uh, the, my first thought is a lot of times when you read words like this, you, you kind of get Halloween pictures in your mind, right? Uh, I saw a beast rising out of the sea. You hear that word beast and you think about, you know, vampires and Frankensteins and, you know, creatures like, like some of the weird creatures that we've seen over the years. Um, all of which, by the way, are now politically incorrect for, for Halloween, right? I'm not sure what we're supposed to be anymore for Halloween. I've lost my way completely. I just, I just have. I mean, I dress up like a leaf. I'm not politically offensive to anybody. What are you? I'm a leaf. I'm not politically inoffensive to anybody. Like, like what in the world? Well, th this, this is not meant to give us like a Halloween picture at all. In fact, there, there's a lot of meaning in each one of the words here, starting with the word beast. Why, why beast? What, what is a beast? And what I want you to think about is that when God made the world, when he created the earth, he put two people on it, right? And those people came under his authority. Their names were Adam and Eve, and as they successively gave birth to children and families began, everybody knew we, we have one king. Uh, they didn't have a government, right? They didn't pay taxes, thank God. They, um, they just said, we, we have a king. Our king is God, and we follow him, and we follow his way, and he walks with us here in, in this garden, and we, we belong to him, and we're under his subject. Now, who, who did God put under Adam and Eve's subject? The beasts, right? And he said, these, these are given, right, to you, and you are to steward them. Steward the beasts, steward the earth that I've given to you. We always think about that, that, that Adam and Eve, part of what they did, I mean, the fun part of it is they give, they give names to all of these creatures, these, these beasts, but it's, it's more than just giving names to them. It's, it's, it's caring for the world that God has made, right? So a, a beast is what? Is a creature that comes under the subject of someone else. And that's kind of the idea that's being expressed here. Isn't a Halloween beast, but what he's trying to say is there's, there's a 
a, a, this, this picture, this image of a beast is there's something that's under the subject of someone. And that someone is Satan. Satan is going to use the, this beast, if you will, to carry out his will on planet Earth. All right? The beast reflects its owner. In this case, Satan. In fact, you'll notice that there's a direct correlation between the way this beast looks and the way Satan looked in chapter 12. Just look at these next words. This beast has ten horns and seven hands, seven, and, and seven uh, heads. Look right back over to chapter 12, verse number 3. What does it say Satan had? Another son appeared, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns. You see a direct correlation there? It's, it's meant to be that. It's meant to say this beast is, this beast that we're seeing rise up out of the sea is underneath the subjugation of this, this dragon. And in fact, it reflects the dragon perfectly. Both seven heads, ten horns. This one with diadems on its horns. What is it really trying to say? What, why, this, why these diadems? Okay. Well, first of all, the seven and the ten. Just like Satan uh, tries to, to abrogate to himself the numbers that belong to God, ten being the number of Yahweh, the perfect number, seven being the name of Jesus Christ, what Satan is saying when, when the dragon has seven heads and ten horns, what he's saying, I'm God. I am God. Right? Don't follow that God, follow me. That's, that's the intent of the seven and the ten uh, in imagery. Same thing with this beast. As this beast comes up, it's going to act like what? Like I'm God. I, I'm the one who tells you how to live and what to do. It has the diadems on its horns. What are diadems normally, who do they belong to? Kings, rulers, princes, right? And so, again, I'm, I'm dressed up like my owner, the one who will control me, and my purpose is to serve him and serve his, his will. So the seven and the ten have uh, some significance. Also significant is what's written on these horns. Um, it says, on its horns are blasphemous, or excuse me, on its heads are blasphemous names. Okay? So what is, what is blasphemy? What, what, what exactly is blasphemy? If you remember in the, in the Old Testament, blasphemy is, is the crime that will have you, one of the crimes that will have you stoned to death. And blasphemy is when I, I really set myself up to be God. When I say, I am God, I'm blaspheming him. This is the charge that the Jews rendered against Jesus Christ. Right? Jesus comes and everybody's fine with Jesus as long as Jesus says, I'm a prophet. I'm a teacher. I'm a rabbi. When Jesus says, I am God, Amy ago, I am the one. I am the I am. Right? Now what do the Jews do? Rip their clothes, cry out, he has blasphemed God, he's called himself to be God. This, this, is, this always amazes me that um, every year someone writes a book about Jesus Christ and uh, will will you know go back historically and claim that that Jesus Christ never said that he was God. 
uh, last year I took a book written by a, a Muslim man. And um, maybe you remember the book was, was entitled Zealot. And in the book, this, this uh, Islamic author does some historical research, and he actually makes this claim that, that Jesus Christ never claimed to be God. He, he simply was a zealot in the line of other zealots from the Jewish faith trying to, trying to create a war against Rome with, without using any weapons. That was the, kind of the primary thesis of the book. Every time I read those books, I say to myself, if that's true, then why did they want to kill Jesus? If he's a zealot, guess what the Jews would do? Embrace him. They say, here's another guy that's going to actually help us overthrow Rome. But no, the Jews don't embrace Jesus. They tell him, we're going to kill you, hang you up on a cross. Why? What's the crime? Blasphemy. He speaks very clearly and says, I, I am the great I am. I, I am God is what Jesus' claim is. Well, when anybody makes that claim, I, I am God, you, you're committing blasphemy. On the heads of this beast are written blasphemous names, all right? We can't see those names today, but they're, they're the names of, of, let's just say, billions of people who over the course of, of history, uh, beginning with the, the advent of Jesus Christ, have blasphemed God. Now, you can do that one of two ways. And I want you to, this is important to me. Blasphemy can be both very obtruse and it can also be very subtle. It's, it's obtruse when I just say it. If, I, if somebody actually claimed, I'm God, and there are people who do that, right? Then you say, well, that's, that's obvious, obtruse, very, that's blasphemy. But there's, there's a second way in which blasphemy happens. I don't have to say I'm God, but what I position myself and I begin to do what? I begin to act like I am God. I abrogate his place. And uh, so I, I believe that this beast is representative of, of entities which would never say we're God. But they, they have positioned themselves that way. And they act that way. And because they act that way, um, they belong to, to Satan. And they are his beast seeking to carry out his will here on planet Earth. Most of the time, I would say, I would say almost all the time, they themselves don't recognize it. They, they, you, you can't stop somebody and say, do you realize that you're carrying out the will of Satan? They, they wouldn't say yes. They'd be like, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm talking about what the Word of God says is what I'm talking about. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the opening is meant to say to us, I want you to see how Satan is working in the world during the last times to abrogate uh, political and organizational entities on planet Earth that will serve him and his will. Now, the fact that it's a political beast primarily really comes out in these, these next words because they connect you back to the Old Testament. All right? Um, so John says... When I looked at the beast, all right, so verse 2, I saw the beast, and it was like a leopard, and its, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Okay, so you kind of get that, that picture of what he looks like. That's a weird Halloween costume right there, right? You got a bear and lion and leopard, and you're thinking, 
what in the world? That's offensive to me. That's just politically incorrect. Um, by the way, I don't know if I told you this, but you, you, I think you did hear this, right? And it's sad to me. You know, I'm a, cow, I'm a Cowboy fan, but Washington Redskins, you, you're always playing against them. And they've had all this pressure, like Kansas City Chiefs, you can't be a Chief because that's politically offensive. Washington Redskins, you can't be a Redskin because that's politically offensive. You've heard that, right? And that guy has been awesome. He's stood up to that for all these years. Like, nope, we're the Washington Redskins. But I just read it now. They're going to make a change in that. And this guy says, yep, it's just become politically offensive. So from now on, we're, we're just going to be the Redskins. <laughs> we don't, we don't want to offend anybody. <laughs> I like that. So... What's the deal with this picture that we're getting? We look at it. We Again, we as Westerners, we read this stuff and we're like some kind of a beast and it's a weird bear and lion and whatever creature. But John doesn't do that. The, quite honestly, John, the second he looked at that beast that fast, he knows exactly what it is because it's not new to him. It's old. And if you know your Old Testament, then you know what a bear and a lion and a leopard are. If you don't know your Old Testament, then you just think, well, they're a bunch of, they're creatures. They're not creatures. Go back to Daniel, where you've seen this before, right? So the, the chapter is Daniel 7, and we'll look at verses 2 to 7. Daniel 7, and we'll look at verses 2 to 7, and I'll show you why, why John was able immediately to look at this beast and say, I know exactly what that is. Right? So in Daniel chapter 7, here's what, <clears throat> here's what Daniel says. Dan Daniel, by the way, and I think I've said this before, is, is a great kind of companion study to the Revelation because, you know, Daniel is the John of his time. He's receiving a vision just like John did. And he's, he's the Old Testament guy saying, here's what God is doing in the, in the spiritual realms that we don't necessarily see with our physical eyes. So here's his vision. Chapter 7 says, In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay uh, in bed. And he wrote down the dream. And he told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heavens we're stirring up the great sea. Now, where does the beast come from in the Revelation chapter 13? It comes out of the sea. Okay. Old Testament imagery. The sea is always looked at as a place of chaos and disorder. It's oftentimes associated with sin itself. Okay. So, it's, it's imagery. It's not necessarily, I literally, I mean, in, in my vision, I see a, a sea but that represents something to me. I'm like, okay, so coming up out of chaos, disorder, and sin, this, this wind stirring up the sea are four great beasts. Okay? In the Revelation, it's one beast that's a composite of these four. Look at the four that Daniel saw. So the four beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion. Matches up with Revelation. 
This one had eagle's wings. It says, then I looked and its, its wings were plucked off. And then it was lifted up from the ground. It was made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. What Daniel was, was being told by God is, this is not a Halloween beast. It's not a literal lion. It's a man. And uh, this man is given power. That's what he's being told. Verse 5, and behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear. Hmm. Lines up exactly with Revelation 13, a lion and a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth. Those, by the way, were Memphis-style ribs, I think. <laughs> Between its teeth, and, and it was told, arise and devour much flesh. So here's another beast, and it's being told by its owner, kill, go and kill, right? Verse number six, after this I looked and behold, another like a leopard, huh, matches up exactly with the revelation, right? A lion, a bear, and a leopard. He had four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. By the way, every time I see four, you just think of the entirety of earth. All right, so the whole of earth is coming underneath the authority of this, this uh, leopard beast. Then verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. So this one's distinct from the first three in the sense that we now introduce into the equation um, iron um, of a mechanical nature. Think about chariots. Think about chariots. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which the three of the first horns were plucked up by its roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So these beasts are not just weird creatures. They're human beings, and they represent, as we look at, at Daniel's theology, they represent political kingdoms, that take their place and their stand over the course of history leading up to that time that Jesus Christ is born. And so here's how we tend to interpret those. The first beast is Babylon. And Babylon, if you look at history, was a nation that, that, that rose up to power. And in fact, um, God used Babylon to discipline Israel for a long period of time, right? Um, Babylon is, a, is a, uh, an image that we're going to see used again as we get a little bit further into Revelation for that, that pagan kingdom that really comes underneath the rule of Satan, really does come underneath the rule of Satan, but for a brief period of time is actually used by God to discipline his own people, all right? So the Babylonians during their time were a pretty impressive uh, culture. And we get archaeologists go back and they look at uh, Babylonian culture and they would say this was a highly advanced culture that rose up to domination and, and power. 
it was supplanted by Persia, the second beast. Um, I, I always like historians, and, and there's a lot, lot of good history being analyzed today um, where you get people like um, uh, Schaefer who are asking the question, um, what will happen to America? And they're looking back in history. And they're looking at these great civilizations that rose up, right? And when you, if you had lived during the period where they were dominant, you would, you would say, this country will forever rule the earth. And then it falls. And then the next culture rises up. Well, that's what happens to, to Babylon. The, the Persians rise up. And they overcome the Babylonians. And they become the new world power. And Babylon is supplanted. Okay? And I love it when historians are just asking that question of America. And they're saying, America, today, most Westerns think, well, we're great. We're America. We have mighty armies and we will never fall. Really? Well, Babylon did. And then Persia fell to who? Greece. Right? The Greeks came in. Um, remember a guy by the name of Alexander the Great? Created a war machine unlike any other that had been invented on planet Earth. You know, human history. By the way, I always quiz people on this. What, what war did Alexander the Great die in? Do you remember which war took him down? Alcohol war. He, never, he was never killed by someone. Alexander the Great was an alcoholic. He drank himself to death at a very young age. But he was known during his time as invincible. Alexander the Great set out with plans to conquer the world, and the, the, the Greek Empire began to rise up, and everybody said, no one will be able to supplant this. This is like, like no other culture, nation we've ever seen, and then guess what happened? The Grecians fell to the Romans, who brought their chariots and their iron instruments in and made war in such a way as human history had never before seen. And it's kind of interesting that if you're on the island Patmos, where John is, you look across, and guess what you see? The seven hills of Rome. And you look at Rome, and you say to yourself, there was a nation and an empire unlike any other. When you were alive in Rome, and Rome was expanding out and expanding out, everybody said, no one will ever defeat Rome. Isn't that true? Who took down Rome? You know that Rome actually fell to, yeah, to just what we're going to call, what I like to call the, those, the early day terrorists. They expanded so fast and so far that they outstripped their ability to control the, the territories that they ruled over and terrorists actually, actually came in and began taking them out. Kind of like when America goes out and spends billions of dollars on bombs and starts bombing the heck out of a place and it has no effect. And terrorists come in and take it down. And the reason that I sometimes read history and look at it and think about it today is because right now we're living in an unprecedented time when a beast is rising up. And it's a political beast, kind of. You know what it's called? Where did my little marker go? 
what this political beast today is called? Islam. And so it's interesting to me to just, just look at some history. Um, this is a beast that has been used for centuries by Satan. It was raised up in the 600s when a prophet, prophet by the name of Muhammad, received a word from God. Here's what I always find interesting about Islam. By the way, anyone know what the word Islam means? Kind of means the same thing as beast. Literally translated, Islam means to be subject to. To be subject to. Here's the way Islam works. It's a trinity. You guys know that? At the very top of the trinity is this, the Quran. What is the Quran? It's the word of God that was received by the prophet, right? And so by that word, you must live. And this word has been translated into Sharia. Anyone know what the word Sharia means? Literal English, English translation? The way. So when Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Sharia says, this is the way, the truth, and the life. Did you guys know that? Here's the third part. Jihad, the sword. And the way that Islam works is we, we are all subject to Allah, who has given his word, that we Sharia live out in our way of life, and if you choose not to live out that way, you have some options. So when, when um, we see the forces of this thing called ISIS, I've been asking people this question here for the last few weeks. You know what ISIS means, right? You know what it stands for, ISIS? The Islamic State in Syria. That's what it stands for. Why Syria? What's in Syria? Little city by the name of what? Debek. <clears throat> if you know your Islamic history, then you know that Debek is the city where Armageddon is to take place. Armageddon is to actually be initiated by Islam against pagans. Why Syria? What's next door to Syria? Jordan. What's next door to Jordan? Israel. So beginning in 2002, the Islamic Brotherhood put together a 20-year plan to take down America and Israel, the two great blasphemous gods. And they are right on track. If you, if you read that 20-year plan, they are just deadly on track to carry that out and to conclude their, their plan in the year 2022. Phase, what phase are we in? We're in the phase where we're going to come in and we're going to initiate cyber war against America. And I think it's kind of interesting, you know, I'll sometimes scour the news and just look at stuff and I started reading, I'm like, hmm, this is the Wall Street Journal. This is kind of interesting. Wall Street Journal never talks about Satan and beasts and that kind of thing, but it does. In fact, it says right here, cyber war ignites a new arms race. So I, I opened it up, and I, I started looking at it. I'm like, hmm, 
That's actually a picture of the Islamic flag that they've got listed here. I'm like, well, that's kind of interesting. What are they talking about? I started reading it. And I'm like, hmm, that's very, very kind of interesting that they're talking about some of the countries that are under the influence of the Islamic Brotherhood, including Iran, um, Iraq, I mean, a whole list of them. And, um, and then I picked up my other favorite magazine, which I know a lot of you read, AARP magazine, right? And I saw this little book out by this guy. His name is, is Ted Koppel. You guys ever remember Ted? And uh, what's Ted been doing since he retired? He's writing a book. You know what the name of it is? Lights Out. Should be published pretty soon. Should read it. Here's what he says. Cyber war against America. What's our weakest point? National grids. How do you attack it? Hack it. Hack it and our electric grids go down. Not for one or two days. We're used to that here in the Midwest. If we get a big snowstorm, knocks our electricity out. We're like, man, when's our electricity coming back on? What comes back on like one or two days? How about two or three years? Out. Your cell phones won't work. Your iPads won't work. Your bank accounts won't be present. All of that stuff that you call your retirement, gone. Just like that. Now, I can read that kind of stuff and think, yeah, people are making all this stuff up. And they're just, people are just kind of deluded. It's actually written out very plainly in a 20-year plan. How do we take America down and take Israel out? We need to capture Syria. And we need to go through Syria and take Israel down first and then America, and we will use not only arms, but we're a new kind of terrorist. We use the cyber world. And so I look at that stuff, and I'm like, it seems to actually be in the Wall Street Journal. And people like Ted Koppel, who, you know, um, I, think, I think a pretty good researcher, are out there looking at what's going on in our world today, and here's what our, here's what our government says to us. This is a friendly religion, peaceful religion. I'm like, have you ever read the Quran? I mean, actually read it? Do you know anything about it at all? Are there some peaceful Islamics? Yes. Just like there are some Catholics who believe that I'm going to be saved by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ, right? In other words, there's Catholics who actually don't represent what the Catholic religion stands for. True? I think there's probably some Lutherans that same way. There's Islamics, particularly a lot of young people living in America today, who they, they probably don't know what their religion stands for, and they, they probably are desirous of, of peace. But their religion, Islam, remember this guy, what's his name, the, the candidate? They asked him, is it possible for an Islamic president to, to you know, have place? And he said, no. Part of the reason he said no is, if you have, by definition, someone who is actually an Islamic, they have to come under the Quran, which means you subjugate beast. You put under the rule of your religion all of those who do not adhere to the word of Allah. Uh, that would be um, America. Yeah. So when you read this stuff here, and you're talking about this, these, this beast that comes out, political beast... Is it, just, is it just Islam? No, it is not just Islam. This is representative of regimes that have come 
and gone over all of history. Um, by the way, you know what the Islamics like to call America? The Great Rome. <laughs> it's interesting to me. So you put it all together, and my, my purpose today is not just to say, hey, get worried about Islam, but what I'm saying is when you look at the paper and you see what's going on around us, none of this is accidental. None of it is coincidental. All of it is right, is right here, and it has been here for a long time. And so you've seen nations rise up and literally political regimes used by Satan, right, to do what? To carry out his will on planet Earth. And that's really what John is being shown here. He's saying to Christians, don't be blind to this. Know that political figures are being used as what? Puppets to carry out the will of Satan. I was going to share this one last thing with you, and then we'll close. When I read something like this, I, I, I'm like, this is exactly what John saw. It says, um, today, in a loud and chilling statement, every Democratic member of the U.S. House of Representatives, but five, voted against a measure to protect babies born alive after a failed abortion. You hear that? A baby is born because an abortion failed. The baby is alive. Okay? There was a measure to protect the life of the born child at a failed abortion. All but five Democrats voted against that measure, said, no, we, we disagree with that. Okay. Um, thankfully, um, the, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act passed the House anyway uh, with unanimous support by the Republicans. And by the way, don't, please, please don't ever come to me and say, Luke, you're Republican or you're Democratic, because I, I really don't have that intention whatsoever. I don't think it's about a political affiliation. I think it's about what, what God is doing on earth. But this is under, it says, the bill, the bill makes it a criminal offense for any abortionist to allow a born infant to die, whether by neglect or by actively killing the child. And I think, I think we've seen now enough evidence that there are people, not, not all, but there are people who actually want that child's parts. And um, as chilling and yucky as that sounds, it's out there, right? Um, the president issued an unusually strong statement in advance of the vote promising to veto this measure should it come to his desk. Okay, so when I read something like that, you know, you can read it and bristle at it and say, yuck. But here, here's the way I read it, always through the Revelation. I'm like, that is a political entity that's being used as a beast, a tool, underneath that beast to carry out the will of Satan who wants what? Kill the children. Just kill them. And uh, I think to myself, that's what chapter 12 meant when it says the dragon was enraged. Couldn't kill Jesus and went off to make war against his offspring. I'll kill the ones who try to belong to him. And he means kill spiritually forever. What we see is it being carried out physically, sometimes with swords and yucky stuff. So when you're reading chapter 13, when you start off, it looks like a Halloween scene, right? Leopards and lions and bears. When you read Daniel, what happens? These are political entities. Do they exist today? Absolutely, yes. 
Are they under the control of Satan? Definitely. Does it get down into our lives? Without question. And so what God is saying is, Christians, remain steadfastly alert to everything going on around you because this battle is for your soul. And that's what, that's what John is being shown. All right, we'll pick up on that next week. Let's pray. Lord God.